How many times have you looked up at night and seen a star-filled sky? A sky so clear that you can see the Milky Way. For me, it's been twice, and it's an experience that I palpably remember to this day. Now imagine living in a place where this was the norm. Every night before you go to bed, you look up at the sky and are overwhelmed by the wonder and beauty of God's creation. How would this change you? How would you change the way you live and interact with others? Think about it. What changes would you make if every day you were reminded of the awesomeness of God? As it turns out, there once was a people for whom this was the norm. And as a result, they had a highly developed sense for how the world around us reveals God. The people of the Middle Ages used this sense to build magnificent cathedrals that we continue to admire to this day. How did they do it? And how is it that we seem to have such a hard time coming up with anything that is even remotely as beautiful? To modern man, these cathedrals are great edifices, full of intricate decoration that at times can seem excessive. We find them to be dense, dark, and hard to understand. But to the medieval mind, these cathedrals were alive, silently speaking volumes to those who were willing and able to listen. Bishop Robert Barron, in his book Heaven in Stone and Glass, summarizes it well. If we are to appreciate the great cathedrals, we must move into the medieval mind. And this means that we must become comfortable with a relentlessly symbolic imagination. We, the heirs of the Enlightenment and the Age of Technology, have a prosaic cast of mind. We like our ideas clear and distinct, and we like our words direct and unambiguous. But to such a consciousness, the cathedrals will remain stubbornly opaque, for they were produced by people for whom the whole world, animals, planets, insects, grasses, seas, and clouds, were symbolic manifestations of a spiritual universe that cannot be seen. Our desire for understanding, inherently a very good thing, has at times overshadowed the human need for wonder, for experiences of beauty for their own sake. We've forgotten that there's so much to learn from beauty and wonder, if we only let our guard down long enough to listen. No one knew this better than John Sr. He is a legendary educator who, along with two colleagues, started the Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas. The IHP was a program that, as we will find out, can almost be summarized as an immersion in what it means to be human. Sr. argued that there was a way of knowing that was being neglected in education, and this was what he called the poetic mode of knowledge. This mode is one that cannot be explained or dissected, but rather it has to be experienced. An example he gave is that of a rose. If I were to say my wife is like a rose, I don't mean tall and thorny. What I mean is, well think of when you've held and smelled a beautiful rose. That's what I mean. You only understand if you've experienced a rose. Much more can be said about the poetic mode, and we will as this episode is part one of two. In this episode, we'll be focusing on John Sr., the man, and the history of the foundation of the IHP. But in a future episode, we will be exclusively focusing on the poetic mode of knowledge. If we are to recover our ability to design churches that speak to us, if we are to create art that reveals God to us, then we must return to the spring of inspiration that is wonder in God's creation. We must peel ourselves away from television, social media, smartphones, and even air conditioning, temporarily, of course, to make ourselves available to discover the truth that awaits to be found.
Welcome to the Beauty Ever New Podcast. Welcome to Beauty Ever New. I'm Rafael Morales, here with Chris Duffel, my co-host, and our guest today is Joseph Leano. Joseph is a graduate of Princeton University. He is a programmer by day and a scholar by night. He is married with his children, and his wife Catherine runs Born in Wonder Co-op, a homeschool cooperative that incorporates many of the principles that John Sr. espoused. Gentlemen, let's begin in a cave. I can't think of a more appropriate place to start. Because the invitation that John Sr. presents his students seems to be perfectly exemplified in the allegory of Plato's cave. So, Joseph, why don't you remind us, what is the allegory of Plato's cave? The allegory of the cave is a story that he tells in uh, his dialogue, The Republic, and talking about education. Uh, people are born in this cave and basically chained to the wall. They only see shadows that are cast. It's kind of a ancient Greek TV. Um, so they, they think that shadows are all there really is and sounds come from them and one of these people is eventually taken out of the cave to the outside world, kicking and screaming. That's uh, mm. what he implies about it. And they're blinded. It's much brighter out there. Um, mm -hmm. But eventually they, they begin to see the real world. You know, they can see the stars at night. They can see the, the moon. They can see the trees, the grass, the real, the real world. They realize that shadows are just kind of a, an outline of the reality. Mm -hmm. And this is, it's probably the most famous story from Plato and certainly gets a lot of, uh, gets talked about a lot in the context of education. What is the cave right now? Well, the cave is just where you're born and it could be the living room with the television or just your phone. It's, you know, the cave mm -hmm. of pixels. The medievals, for example, would have said, if you, if you look at creation, if you really see what's there, you know that there's a God and you're... Mm -hmm. You're uh, blown away with wonder. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. even Augustine talks about, it's, it's very obvious if you look at creation that God exists. Right. And yet if you really see, see what's it. there. Mm. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. But what we've, we've done, and there's a lot of reasons for it, is made it so that we don't see what was obvious to other people. Yeah. Instead of seeing something wonderful, we see what's basically a complicated machine. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dawkins or, or somebody like that is an extreme case, right? No, you, you don't actually even think. You just have the impression that you think. Right. Like you're, you're not. <laughs> yeah. yeah right? so the cave That's is, an extreme case. But it's, yeah. you would say even, even most people who are raised religiously and who would tell you, no, no, you're an image of God. The way that they actually think about the world is much closer to a, a you know, Cartesian way that sees just matter in motion. Yeah. Um, and, and they're not really seeing you know, the beauty and the goodness, the truth of, of creation. Really, do you think that it applies to you? It's like, well, that's what all the other people suffer and they're in the cave, but I'm not. You mm. know. Those poor chumps looking at the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, I, I get to see everything. But what is keeping people from seeing? Is, is it an ability to see or is it a desire to see? So there, I mean, I guess it's, it's both for sure. So I mean, even Augustine talks about not wanting to see. You know, when he, he knew the truth of Christianity, he resisted that. So that, that isn't anything new. 
part of the problem is also that it it makes a demand on you just like augustine that you know to to realize that there is something out there outside of yourself is to make demands on you yeah you know, and particularly you see that with moral questions right or with with euthanasia or with marriage and stuff like that yeah that people very much don't want to but i and that's something that's always been around and mm-hmm. it, i mean of course it's all it's still an issue yeah but i don't think that that was really the core of what what he saw uh, or what his insight of what why it was that there was such a profound resistance yeah to seeing what was there what's interesting about john senior and the reason i think the cave is helpful to talk about to start is that what he noticed was that his students used you know the process of educating is taking them out of the cave and exposing them and then they they see these new mm-hmm. this new reality they they see reality as it is and what his experience was was that they not only didn't see it they became more convinced that there were just shadows hmm. it was a little bit there was something obviously wrong something had changed yeah. that made them not only blind to what was happening but somewhat Obstinate helped in their blindness exactly huh. there was something that was different so what what made John Senior's background different? Like why why did he not have some of the same issues that his students had? He wasn't educated that much earlier than they were. Between the thirties and the fifties, there there wasn't that big a change. The progressivism, kind of the, the late eighteen hundreds, I mean public schooling was probably not that different, I'm sure. Mm. It's continued kind of in the same direction. But um I think the big thing and it well the big thing was his extracurriculars. When he was a, a young teenager he this was during the the great depression he took what money he had went to the bus station and got a ticket for as far as the money would take him Mm. which happened to be south dakota and he got it he got work on a ranch there for several months Mm. um and this was amazing yeah he's he's in some sense the last old west cowboy because south dakota was kind of the end of the old west they hadn't mechanized yet that happened kind of during and after world war ii so they, wow. they rode horses, they sat around campfires, they slept under the stars, looked at the stars. You know, he was, he was a cowboy, um, you know, maybe 13 or 14 years old, mm. um, away from home all by himself. His parents were looking crazily for him in, in uh, Pennsylvania and all along the East Coast where they thought he was. And the only reason they found him was that the rancher eventually called them and said, come get your kid. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> <laughs> and here's here's the great part and what, why his parent I mean this says something about where he was raised or okay. how his parents were okay. like okay. they decided well he ran away once and we didn't find him right somebody sent him back he could do it again so we'll send you back next summer but you have to you know you mm. have to stay in school and we'll send you back oh really yeah. so nice. we'll know right so he he spent his summers being a cowhand in South Dakota and this was kind of where he got his taste for, uh, I'm going to say, the real world, yeah. uh, reality. Mm. He, he came to see, you know, the, seeing the stars, working with animals, the life that wasn't mechanical and artificial and suburban mm. and mm. kind of cut off from reality the way that was already happening in the 30s, but became much much more after World War II with the kind of the development of tract housing, television, yeah. prepackaged meals. Yeah. Like all of these things that air conditioning, 
um, yeah. that cut you off from seasons that cut you off from nature from yeah. even other people like there yeah. isn't real community the way that sitting around a campfire when you're dog tired and yeah. cold at night yeah yeah um, you know you it, can read the odyssey or right any of those and and you know something of what they're talking about very intuitively because you experienced it right yeah. so you, you there's a one-to-one relationship as opposed to an abstraction right the really interesting thing is that he wasn't the only one of the three professors who was who kind of had that kind of background. Mm. One of the other ones, for example, ran away literally to join a circus. Circus, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, broke horses, wild mustangs during the Depression, ran off to that's, Canada to enlist because he was awesome. too young, <laughs> flew in both, you know, became an, a pilot, flew in, flying in both theaters in the, yeah. in the war. So, like, they were academics and, and eggheads, but they also had real-world experience, and they, they knew what they were doing. They were, at least yeah. in some sense, competent and experienced they 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 knew the world um, so i think that had something to do with probably why they got along so well with each other and yeah. saw the world the same way and also could understand why their students who had nothing like that didn't see what they saw in these in these great texts yeah you know it's it's interesting because it it's it's a little bit, at first, it's a little bit difficult to understand when you say like, well, you're not experiencing reality um, because it's, it's counterintuitive. I mean, I'm, I'm alive. I'm in the real world. I'm real, so to speak. I mean, you are, but I guess it goes back to the whole Plato's cave thing. You're seeing the shadows. You're not seeing the fullness. So I was reading a little bit about uh, John Cena, and I know that he hated television. Like he, he, hate, he thought... He recommended that everyone go home and smash their TV. Yep. And his reasoning was television mediates reality for you. So is that kind of where, where the trouble lies, so to speak, that a lot of these things are, are mediating your reality? So in, in a way, you are perceiving reality, but all these things are warping it. They're all kind of changing what, what you're seeing to where you're, you're experiencing um, I don't know. I don't know how, what to call it—an alternate version of it. You know, it's almost like you're constantly medicated by these things. You're not able to to see the world because you're medicated by television, by the internet, by music, by pop culture, and all that. Yeah, I think part of part of what television and you know climate control, mechanical, all of these mechanical things do is give humans. Intuitively, it's maybe not even explicitly a sense of power over nature, mm. and so that's a very enlightenment view of humanity's re- relationship to the world. Right? Yeah. We're here to yeah. dominate, and whatever kind of is in our way, we sure. overcome. Right. Which is very different. If if you're trying to understand the medieval point of view, it's it's very different. They were much more about living in harmony, much more. Uh, they would have been much more similar to American uh, American Indians, for example, mm. in the sense of trying to live in harmony. Part of why you, you could say people don't experience reality is that you tend to look at things as raw materials. You see a tree as like an inefficient way of giving shade or like less efficient yeah. than an air conditioner rather than seeing it as this living thing that's been here for hundreds mm. of years potentially or... Yeah. You know, having its own beauty and, and growth, like all of these things that are reflective of God and nature and all of these things um, 
a horse is an inefficient automobile as opposed to right this really beautiful wonderful animal that humans can ride like it's mm-hmm. it's a it's half ton beast and you can move you around and you have this relationship with it it's not no two horses are the same the way that every car coming off the yeah the automobile you know the assembly line is uh so it, it's it's a subtle difference but it's whether you are the way things you are whether the way you are perceiving things is blinding you to certain things that are there mm-hmm. uh, making it harder for you to see it and yeah. kind of cutting you off from that if you know medieval people and there are a lot of a lot of people yes wouldn't necessarily see suffering as worse than death but in modern culture suffering is the worst possible thing right um and it's very hard for them to see why someone could imagine that living and suffering is a good thing or right. a bearable or something to, that should be endured or sure. should make you better sure but living differently might give you a different sense of that mm-hmm. and different experiences could help you open your your eyes like oh there there's a reason you know there are still good things that can come from this there are yeah. still there's richness and you even if it's you know your quality of life isn't necessarily great mm-hmm. it helps open you up to the experience of god or to see how these things however imperfect and decaying can still point you towards something beyond that yeah yeah what happened in kansas and why it's even important to talk about right now right so what happened in kansas was the integrated humanities program ihp yeah started in 1970 okay. but it was kind of getting geared up in the late 60s Got it. so he's he's noticing these problems as he's becoming a teacher in the 50s mm, okay. uh, i think he he was on the gi bill getting his phd mm. after world war ii okay and then he goes on to become a teacher and his students experience was very different than his experience of being exposed to these great poetry this great writing right. great literature and philosophy uh, there's something very different in what they saw than yeah. what he had seen yeah and the ihp came out of him and there, there are a few other professors as well but senior is kind of the most well-known and probably mm-hmm. probably because he actually tried to articulate an abstract right. understanding of it but the abstract part was just to support the reality of educating yeah the 70s of course was was the time when culture was falling apart in the west you know, was, vietnam war was going on there were riots on campus people were it's the sexual revolution uh, people were leaving organized religion it, it was a time of huge turmoil the ihp and mm-hmm. uh, the students there were basically going in the opposite direction mm. they were becoming more religious they were converting to christianity they were not fighting in wars well maybe everybody was trying not to (laughs) (laughs) um and it it was the kind of thing that very very quickly it went from some some little project on the side like oh yeah he's a great teacher and he's going to do this to a threat to the rest of the university Mm. and basically everyone else trying to shut it down they were getting investigated their money was cut off interesting um the accreditation got got strangled and what were the concerns from the university well the university said it was a 
It was a cult. It was cult. A cult. Well, and that was was it Kansas State? What what university was it? University of Kansas. University of Kansas. Okay. Basically, that it was being proselytized. That uh, that the students were being pressured into mm. because John Senior and the others were such dynamic teachers mm. they were pressuring students into following them into their uh, weird christian beliefs and mm. you know it was okay basically like a cult wow. um i don't know that those words exactly got used but that that was kind of the implication mm. um also that they were advocating for a particular point of view mm. so that this was which they of, were and people typically do right right well and this was kind of the, the heart of the conflict and John Senior said, we're, we're advocating for the idea that there is a truth. We're not telling them what the yeah. truth is. We're yeah. just telling them there is a truth, and we're helping them to see it for themselves. Mm. And what the rest of the university is doing isn't being broad-minded. What it's doing is advocating for skepticism. Mm. It's advocating for the idea that you make your own truth, that there is nothing out there. You do it for yourself. Which, like, that's the first argument. If you can't actually come to an agreement on that argument, you know, there's either, like, one thing or there's lots of things which means there's nothing right which like if if the if john if it's john senior versus the world and the world says choose your own truth then like pick your own adventure then doesn't that in some way undermine like the project of higher education or education like at all well i mean the thing is the rest of the university didn't see themselves as advocating for anything they Uh, thought they were being open-minded and fair and he was pointing out, I think correctly, that no, they are advocate. Like, there is no such thing as yeah. completely neutral. Yeah. You're you advocating for something, ah, and you're just and the, you're yeah. Just by existing, you're choosing one thing over another. Yeah, you can't. I had an architecture professor who uh, he he coined this line. Like, I I said a bunch of stuff in like way too convoluted a way. And he goes, "Oh, it's interesting. That's like saying you can't not have a metaphysic." Like he John John Senior saying like, "Here's my view of the world, and I think it's true." And someone else can say, I think this is true. Right. But they're not actually advocating for the truth that there is, you know, lots of different options. They're saying, oh, I'm just like, I wouldn't even say that's true. It's like the the option of not having a metaphysic isn't on the table. Because as soon as you sort of adhere to something. Right. Well, then, the lie is that that isn't a metaphysic. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The name of the program was the Integrated Humanities Program. It was integrated because... They didn't have separate disciplines. Everything that they learned was building off of everything else. Mm-hmm. So if they did some kind of mathematics or geometry, that was integrated with the sense of, you know, they're, they're learning about proportion and harmony. Yep. And then that would get pulled into the poetry and get pulled into literature, into the history. So they were integrating everything. There was, there was no kind of medley of things that you could take this history class and that architecture class and this engineering class. And yeah. They were separate disciplines kind of specializing you in different ways. Everything reflected on everything else. It was also a humanities program. It was the purpose wasn't to expand knowledge specifically. It was to humanize. It mm. was to help you understand what it was to be human. It wasn't to tell you what it meant to be human. It was to expose you to these things. Have you have these practices, memorizing poetry, learning Latin, yeah. um, reading you know, Herodotus or Plato or whoever, uh, that helped you to understand what it meant to be human. And the thing was, you could, this could be no different than what was taught 500 years previous. I mean, obviously they now had Chaucer and Shakespeare and, and mm-hmm. other, other writers, but 
there is no reason that you would always be having to move forward or like yeah. it's not a research institution you could yeah you could teach potentially the same things every year to a new group of students and make them come alive to them yeah. mm -hmm. um the outlook on the world that it seems like john senior is advocating is one in which um, you're equipping the student or whoever it is with the tools by which they can um, investigate via like a sort of discursive knowledge, by a poetic mode, by a, um, something that's m maybe more scientific to be able to find that out. And it's not that you have to know in like the, you know, in the objective sense, but that when you have the tools to be able to do that sort of investigation, then you can try to figure it out. It's not like the students were taught what the right things were to do or that they were taught that the, the classics were the best thing, but that they like observed and that they were kind of shepherded. And there's a particular line um, in the reading where um, John Senior talks about teachers as if they are um, an auxiliary in the equation. Like they're, um, he relates it to a physician who, uh, like doctors and physicians, they don't cause help in the patients, right? They, okay. they, um, they guide it and, and the way he puts it is that they prudently assist nature to its own perfection. So the doctor doesn't you know, imbue health into the patient. The doctor assists with certain medical procedures and certain advice for how to go about living your life so that the patient can become healthy, right? can achieve their natural end. And in some way, the, the teacher does the same thing. They don't cause knowledge in the student, but they can prudently shepherd them to in some way be able to um, prudently assist nature to its own perfection. Now, John Sr. had, the way he talked about teaching in this particular case, is the teacher was simply helping the student to recognize what was true inside of them or to find mm. their, you know, and it sounds horribly relativistic, and it, I don't, but I don't think that it is. In fact, well, I'm sure that it's not, but you, it was like you helping you to find your truth. Um, yeah. And what that meant was in your, the student's own experience of truth they would be brought towards what was good, true, and beautiful because that was one. Like yeah. their experience of it would be different. And you could even see in art, every artist sees something different, but they are portraying beauty there. Well, many of them looking, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> let's let's have some cutoff in time, so but yeah. Beauty, um, but yeah, he, I mean, it, he sounds just as bad as any kind of yeah. make your own truth that you might sure. hear in a public school. Right. But the difference was, it's nuanced, he was, yeah, he had an understanding. He was helping them to see a truth that was unified. And so their, ex the experiences of different people would converge towards that. Even if they are still having to look at what they see and maybe they don't see something that somebody else does, but they, mm -hmm. they'll see something different. Yeah. Yes, it's it's in some way very similar to um, the the Catholic Church's understanding that you should follow your conscience, but that in no uncertain terms, like that conscience needs to be a well formed conscience. So it's not that any conscience works. It's not that any any outlook on life works. It's you need to like follow your intuition, but you need to be formed by the great books and by the classics and like, right. by the things that actually mm -hmm. show you what reality is. Yeah, um, and there, there's a kind of parallel there between the two, like trusting the person to like find their way, but an absolute insistence on a certain type of formation being, you know, the best type of formation. One of the things that John senior and the HP thought that they or thought was important to do was to actually provide some guidance in 
figuring out what was not good in hmm. all of these books because there are lots of contradictions in them, right? Interesting, yeah. Yeah, you know, the ancient Greeks thought slavery and pederasty and all sorts of things were pretty normal. Um, and obviously, the, at, at any point in time, there are different things that people would find horrifying. And one of the things I think that helped his intuition that liberal arts, why students were failing in the liberal arts or turning up relativistic, you know, mm -hmm. insisting that there were just shadows was they're exposed to something that's very different, Aristotle or Plato or whatever, mm -hmm. and asked to form an opinion. And the only real point of contact they had was something really horrifying they had to say about slavery or mm, women yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so it, and, but they also know that this was a person who was very influential and people really looked up to. So it kind of would reinforce the idea that, well, there, there was good for them yeah. and there's good for us, mm. or this is true for some people, but not for me. And so that teaching or even exposing people to liberal arts or great books haphazardly the way that it's done in universities mm. and in a non-integrated way contributed to the problem of relativism because mm. you're just swamped you don't have the tools to go through and figure out what's worthwhile so that's part of what a teacher was doing was also helping them to mediate or to kind of navigate what was good in these things what was bad and when two people said different things how do you well, what do you what do you do with this? How do you not throw out the baby with the bathwater? Mm. One of the things that was unique about HP, he he said that they were a school in, masquerading as a college. Mm. Um, they weren't trying to teach to, discursively. They were going back to the basics and teaching stuff that should have been taught, you know, at home or at school. Things that you would have just picked up in a village life or. You know, the, the way that everybody lived before there was television to kind of have a, yeah. a, a mass medium. Right? Working with someone else and like learning by observation. Almost. Right. So the, the, the whole idea of poetic knowledge um, was knowledge by experience, knowledge by emotion. That um, was before you can really think about or talk about or have things come out of your head, which is what kind of a liberal arts education is about think about this, critique it, engage with it in some way, you have to actually have experiences that you can compare them to. Mm -hmm. So what IHP was about, what they were about was just filling their heads, so mm -hmm. to speak, with experiences of beauty, with experiences of, uh, you know, truth and goodness, mm -hmm. so that when they got to a real liberal arts class, <laughs> yeah. they, they had something worth thinking about or something to compare it to. Yeah. yeah. So they would memorize poetry. Well, that was one of the things that they, that they did. Um, mm. And the point wasn't to analyze it. It was just to enjoy it. It was to have some intuitive sense of like, yes, this is a good poem. Yeah. This is, this is a great poem. And I, and I think you had said that they didn't read the poems to memorize them. They actually memorized them from hearing them. So it's right. like another so they were, layer of, of they were like, putting a kind of oral tradition to it. That was right. it was taught by people who had memorized it. So older older students yeah. in higher classes would teach them. Um and actually even like Latin classes that John Senior taught were done that way. Not not so much reading from a book and memorizing that way, but just by being in the class and him speaking Latin and yeah. teaching you in Latin and you picked it up 
kind of the way that you would a language as a two-year-old. Yeah, the students would, um, they would go to class and the class wasn't so much uh, standard deliver as we currently understand it, but they were, they would sit and listen to two other professors talk about a topic. Right. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't conversational in, but, pedagogy or yeah, something. They would like just that. like observe two people who are fluent in a certain like topic and language and discipline exchange back and forth and they would ab- absorb it in a way that, um, uh, that it, it really, it's interesting because when you think about people getting good at things nowadays, like say you're going to get really good at uh, a particular scientific uh, endeavor or some sort of technology, you're going to specialize, you're going to get a PhD, you're going to, you know, whatever. You um, you break the thing apart into smaller pieces and you get really specialized into smaller and smaller sections, right? You specialize. But it's almost like what he's doing is the opposite of this objectification. Instead of like breaking things into little parts and like being really analytical about it and really... Um, like measuring everything he's like putting it all back together and you're not talking about it you're just feeling it and you're absorbing it you're like a frog sitting in this like pond of the classics and you're just absorbing it everything through your skin instead Mm -hmm. of like a scientist who's like breaking it all apart and like understanding every little thing abstracted from its context that's that's exactly right and i before i answer that just to go back Mm -hmm. and the way that they would uh, converse uh, they wouldn't plan they wouldn't have lectures written out it was just two two or three professors who understood the topic really well talking about what was great about this or mm-hmm. how it compared to other things mm-hmm. that they'd been reading and and you know even what was wrong with it why they disagreed potentially yeah. with certain things and what this reminds me of a little bit for is having conversations with your spouse around the dinner table and having little kids listen. Mm. Like this is, this is a way oh, it's so good. that even <laughs> if they don't really understand, they're kind of picking up by osmosis, these things that it's better than gossip in some way. Cause I remember doing this yeah. as a little kid, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. what they were talking about was very interesting. Yes. Like almost like juicy and, and yeah, it could be about anything, but yeah, I, I think that was, that was an image and that's something that people could bring that's really good. to their, you know, to their families. Uh, just sure. Having, having adult conversations in presence of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're interesting conversations, yeah, they're going to pay attention and they're going to learn all kinds of things and kind of absorb the values and opinions. Maybe, you know, you're not stamping them into their minds, but they're, they're, seeing things that they wouldn't have otherwise and yep. if they're watching tv they're doing that too it's just somebody mm-hmm. in hollywood yeah. or new york oh who's gosh. the one who's doing that that's right? so like Absolutely. disgusting I wanna... <laughs> yeah so to kind of begin to wrap up i think you mentioned it a little bit earlier but so what ended up happening with ihp and what was some of the i guess some of the fruits of that program and so pretty the first it started in 1970 and at first it grew very quickly they had grants had lots of students joining up it was accredited accredited you you only took your classes with ihp and it started causing problems with the rest of the the university they were Mm -hmm. being accused of advocate advocacy of you know pressuring the students into changing a lot of the students started to convert or become more religious Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually they took away they took away funding. They took away the the ability to get all of your credits through that program, and they mm. kind of over a decade, decade and a half, grounded into the ground. Like they were still professors, still there, still teaching classes, but it wasn't yeah. this kind of large program that it was. 
at its height, I, how many people were there? I want to say there's a few hundred students. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, but a lot of them ended up converting to Catholicism. A few, I think one of the, one of the nails in the coffin for the, was the, the program was two of the students went to join a monastery, uh, Benedictine monastery, pretty strict observance mm, those nasty in France, Catholics, <laughs> especially the monks. Right. And in fact, one of them was Father Bethel who wrote this book. Oh, great. Um, but a lot of the students that came out of that program went on to become educators themselves. Yeah. They, they mm-hmm. studied and wrote about the poetic mode of knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, teachers at, uh, the St. Gregory, the great Academy. That's mm-hmm. a high school or a boarding school, um, universities. Uh, I think anywhere that you see Catholic, at least higher education being done very well today, there's John senior and the IHP is somewhere yeah, in the somewhere background. In there. Yeah. The seeds. And there's a monastery, right? That was kind of a direct fruit of the program. Right. Two the two students who went to France ended up coming back as monks and founding a, a monastery at Clear Creek in Oklahoma. It was as close as they could get to Kansas, uh, which yeah. is where they had wanted to go. But mm. it's, uh, it's booming with vocations. I think it recently became an abbey, and they're founding a daughter house. So. And they have something like 40, 40 monks or something like yeah, that? I think it might be 50. But yeah. It's incredible. Absolutely. Just in incredible. 20 yeah. years or so. And a, and a yeah. bishop, right? There's at least one bishop that I know of that came out of the mm. IHP. IHP, yep. In so. Lincoln, Nebraska. So uh now that we're sort of wrapping up the uh, I, I, did, I did have another okay now another that we're not wrapping it up we have one question. more question <laughs> and it was it was just simply like so it was wildly successful it was a very concrete way to introduce people to to the real to the kind of to the awareness of i would say of of god in all things in a way you know to, to be able to see the world in this in a different way so since the 60s and 70s, when John Cena was doing this, culture has changed dramatically, obviously. No. If, if people were disconnected and were having their reality mediated back then, well, now it's like turned up to 20, you know. So is his method still relevant? Is it still strong enough to kind of pull people out of kind of the medicated state that everyone's in these days? From, yeah. from the internet and everything else. I, mean, I think, think the short answer is yes. And what's, I think what's really important to remember about John senior didn't want to do anything new, mm. right? His, his purpose was to teach poetry well, and it, he had to figure out how to do that in this culture. Yeah. And what's very clear in his writings, he was, he was not intending to be novel. Right. And, and the thing was, he was novel specific or precisely because of that, right? Or yeah. not novel, but like right. he was able to make explicit things that were just implicit in culture before, but had kind of been suppressed by the advance of technology, mm-hmm. so to speak. But I think that, so one of the, one of the things that I really liked about just the, the poetic mode of knowledge and this kind of abstract way of understanding it was it pulls together so many other things now you can read C.S. Lewis or Alistair McIntyre or anybody, you know, not even just academics, but even someone like Marie Montessori mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and the, what they see at the problems with modern culture or education or any of these things. And if you go down deep enough, what they're talking about, or at least have some intuitive grasp is what he, 
made explicit with the distinction of poetic knowledge from dialectic and scientific knowledge. Um, The rhetoric. Right. And, you know, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd is one fantastic way Mm -hmm. from a completely different branch. Yeah. That I think a lot of his principles are being applied. It's about forming a sense of wonder, mm-hmm. not about abstract memorization right. of stuff. It's mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. just learning to love God, creation, the world, see yeah. what's beautiful. Right. Um, but you can see, and in some some ways, what he explains says better or, or a little bit more abstractly what Marie Montessori and the people who came mm-hmm. up with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd are trying to do like you can see the two of them and they they sound the same mm-hmm. yeah yeah no, <laughs> you can very easily see the parallels there thanks for coming well, yeah thank, thank you, you for having me i think, I think this is great enjoyed yeah. the conversation yeah. thanks for listening the best way to enjoy the podcast is to pull up the accompanying blog post for the episode at beautyevernew.com there you will find show notes guest information helpful visual aids, and more. To continue the conversation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know how you're experiencing beauty in your churches and communities.